following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I shouldn't probably ask this question, but I'm going to. Are there any people in this room outside of myself and my wife? I'm very lucky that both myself and my wife agree on this point, that think Valentine's Day is a worthless holiday. Anybody else? More men than women? Okay, that's fine. I'm good with that. But for the few of you for whom that is not true, okay, for, the, for those of you in this room for whom Valentine's Day is a very important day, um, and if in that group of people there is also a subgroup of people who are big Star Wars fans, now you're like, where in the world is this going? Uh, if tonight your big plans were to go to dinner and then go see Star Wars The Force Awakens for the 12th time, and ladies, you just didn't know what to wear, I found it for you last evening. For all of you on this side, I'm sorry, you can't see it as well. Yes, it is a Star Wars dress. I just, you know, let's think about this for a moment, okay? There are very smart people, right, who run these kinds of things, who think about the styles and trends and know, they do market analysis, they know what people like, what people want to buy. This is the reason that, this is JCPenney's, by the way, this is the reason why these places make money and stay in business for long periods of time. I just can't picture who would buy this. There, is there a woman in this room who would admit, yes, I would buy this one? I applaud you for your honesty, if nothing else. It's at the JCPenney in Greenbrier Mall on the second level, just so you know. Okay? Got your outfit for tonight. All right. I don't know how to come back from that one now. Uh, what's that? I am almost tempted to make an offer publicly that if someone comes wearing it next Sunday that I would like shave my head or do something, but I've done that before and no one would care. So I don't know. Uh, if you wear one next Sunday, though, I will give you extra whatever <laughs> just because that's awesome. All right. Uh, we are going to do what we have done many times before, and that is we've got a two-part sermon today. So that means if you're new to Cornerstone or newer, I'm going to go, uh, we're going to read a section of the text. It's actually kind of a longer section today, and we're going to work through it to a point, and then I'm just going to abruptly stop in a very awkward manner, and then make a few uh, observations at that point, all to come back next week and finish it out. I, I do this because sometimes it's just too much material in the text, and I want to keep the idea together in some way, shape, or form, and I find this to be helpful even if you don't. So... We're going to read from chapter 14, verse 53, all the way to chapter 15, verse 15, okay? So it's a long section of text. Please follow along either in your Bible or on the screen as I read. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, when the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against uh, Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. 
And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystander, bystanders, this man is one of them, but again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a, a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Father, please help us today as we begin to walk through this section to understand it, to see it with fresh eyes. We, we have read this before, probably many times for some of us, and so there is a real sense in which we have become numb to the things that are transpiring here. I pray that you would remove that. Help us today to see you, to understand you, and to appreciate all that is going on here in a way we never have before, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of you have watched uh, the Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer? Anyone in here seen that? It's this slide here. Um, not many. I'm kind of surprised by that. It's actually a very interesting documentary. I, I, I feel like I've watched a good number of documentaries in my life, mostly about science and history kind of stuff. That tends to be what I'm more interested in. I haven't really watched a lot of crime documentaries, so this is, for me, a little bit different. But uh, it tells the really almost unbelievable story of a man named Stephen Avery who, in 1985, was wrongly convicted of the rape and attempted murder of a woman named Penny Bernston in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. Ms. Bernston had been jogging one day on the shores of Lake Michigan and was brutally attacked. And when the county's sheriff's office arrived and interviewed her for the first time, Almost immediately, upon the very first interview, I believe, with her, and without any evidence to the contrary, they mention, accuse Stephen Avery, this man, of having been uh, the perpetrator of the crime. And the reason why they did this is long and complicated, but it basically boils down to the fact that there had been an ongoing uh, dispute, dislike, mutual dislike, between this guy and certain individuals who were members of the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. And when they found a chance to lock him up for a crime, they took it. I mentioned to you just a moment ago that in the initial interview with her, like after the rape, she, she's describing what's going on, and they say to her as part of that process, boy, that sure sounds like Stephen Avery. Now, just think about that from a, a justice perspective. You're talking to a victim, and you're beginning to mention names, even without evidence. Uh, they take her account of the, or her description of the accuser, and they go and they sketch uh, a police sketch of the individual. And lo and behold, the, the, the sketch looks an awful lot like a picture of Stephen Avery that they had had on file from a prior incident. When the moment comes to put before her a photo lineup of various people who it could be, they make sure to include Stephen Avery's picture. And when the time comes for her to actually identify a person in an actual police lineup, Guess which individual in particular is in the lineup? Make sure that he was in the lineup. It's Stephen Avery. And so it's no wonder that by the time all of this is done, she identifies this man as being the guy who attacked her, who raped her. Yes, he's the man. I've seen him before. Well, of course she had seen him before. 
She's been hearing his name and seeing his image in all kinds of different ways up until that point. So she identifies him as her attacker. As a quick side note, he's not guilty, as I've already indicated. Uh, she, she felt, years later, she felt terribly guilty for, for having wrongly identified this guy. But you kind of understand why she did as you look back at all the things that occur. But that's neither here nor there. All while this is going on, Every last shred of evidence, evidence in the case is pointing away from Stephen Avery and is pointing toward another man named Gregory Allen, who was a known sexual offender in the area at the time. In fact, the day of the attack, Stephen Avery wasn't anywhere near where she's attacked. In fact, he had, I think, over a dozen, I mean, like over 20 witnesses indicating, no, he's not there. He was with us. We saw him at this time. We saw him there. Uh, but none of that mattered. And even though the Manitowoc Police Department, there's a city of Manitowoc and there's a county of Manitowoc, even though the Manitowoc City Police Department called the Sheriff's Department and said, listen, we think you're looking at the wrong guy. You need to look at this guy, Gregory Allen. We've been watching him for a while. None of this matters. He is convicted of rape and attempted first-degree murder simply on her testimony and identification, and he is sentenced to jail where he would spend the next 18 years of his life protesting his innocence. Now, what's even worse in this story about this, uh, the initial thing from 1985, had he confessed, he would have probably been, probably been paroled after two or three years. Similar criminals who had done the same crime, who had confessed to the crime, had gone before the parole board and received uh, a pardon so they could go, uh, pardon, but had received parole so they could get out. The only reason, the only reason he was never paroled was because he refused to confess. So for 18 years, he sits in jail waiting for some exoneration. All of this continues until 2002 when a group known as the Wisconsin Innocence Project decided to take a look at his case. DNA tests weren't available in 1985, and so there was no way to check or prove things, but they went back and they looked at the physical evidence that had been preserved from the crime, they run DNA tests on it, lo and behold, guess what? It's not Stephen Avery. Guess who it was? It's the other guy, Gregory Allen, the one that the Manitowoc Police Department had told them, you should look at this guy, we think it's him, go check him out, and they refused. Now, if the story stopped here, it would obviously just be a tragic story, right? I mean, a man has lost 18 years of his life in jail for a crime that he did not commit. Um, and all the evidence in the case would seem to suggest, I'm not accusing, I'm just saying it would seem to suggest that it was purposeful. There was a purposeful choice by the officials involved at the time to not look in the right direction and to purposely look in the wrong direction and perhaps even somewhat frame him for the crime, it would be tragic enough in and of itself. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. After being released from prison, Mr. Avery did what probably any one of us would do if we were in his shoes, having been wrongly convicted of a crime and put in jail for 18 years. He decides to sue. He decides to sue the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. He decides to sue certain key individuals that he believed to be a part of this uh, uh, crime against him back in 1985, and he decides to sue them to the tune of $36 million. And the interesting little side note here is that, you know, cities, counties, et cetera, states probably, I don't know where this cuts off at, they have insurance. You can buy insurance for, for municipalities. So they had insurances for insurance coverage for certain things, but all their insurance providers said, look, you're on your own on this one. You guys did this, so we're not covering you. So the county and the individuals are now personally and corporately on the hook for this particular lawsuit. Well, in the midst of all of this, as that court case is beginning to move forward and more and more evidence about what happened back in 1985 is coming to light, Stephen Avery, whose family owned an auto salvage yard there in Manitowoc County, decides to sell a minivan that belongs to his sister. And so how many of you remember the, uh, I think maybe they still print them, I don't know, the Auto Trader magazines? You see them used to, before the internet existed, you had to go get books to buy cars, right? Uh, they'd be at grocery stores and things like that. He decides to call Auto Trader and have them send out a photographer to take a picture of the minivan and, that he's trying to sell. And so on October 31st, 2005, a photographer named Teresa Halbach comes to Avery's property. She meets with Stephen Avery. She takes pictures of the minivan. He says at this point she leaves the property and goes, he knows, he doesn't know where. Unfortunately, she never comes home. Days pass. 
Her family gets search parties together. They begin going out looking for her. And after days of searching, her car is discovered in the back of the Avery Auto Salvage Yard. Uh, later, police would find charred bone fragments, which belonged to Ms. Halbach, on the property. And on November 11, 2005, Stephen Avery is arrested for murder, charged with murder, for Ms. Halbach. Now, at this point in the story, and if you're not familiar with this, and I'm giving too much away, too bad, uh, you'll still enjoy the documentary. At this point in the story, the question becomes, was Stephen Avery framed by the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department for the murder of Teresa Halbach, perhaps to protect the reputation because everything that was coming to light from the 1985 case is, is calling into question a lot of things that they did, uh, perhaps to uh, repay him for how much they disliked him and for him being exonerated, perhaps to try to prevent them from being held accountable for a $36 million lawsuit that's being brought against particular individuals and the sheriff's department as a whole, or perhaps all of the above. This is really what the documentary is about. It's, it's kind of putting this before you to have to look, look at it and understand. And you know, I'll be honest, um, after watching it and after reading about the case online on my own, <laughs> I don't really know what I think at this point about him or about the details of the case. On the one hand, there are a number of things that occurred surrounding the murder investigation that are at best fishy. For example, after they charge him with murder, they issue a search warrant, after they find the car, I should say, they, they issue a search warrant uh, for this property. And for the next eight days, the entire Avery family is forbidden from coming on their property. Now, initially, another um, law enforcement agency is handling the case, and for the first three days of the investigation, they search the property, they search his trailer that's on the property, they don't find anything. I think day three or day four, two Manitowoc County Sheriff's uh, deputies go search his trailer again, and lo and behold, what do they find in the trailer? The key to her car. Three days of searching didn't turn this up, but two Manitowoc County Sheriff's deputies find it within just a moment. Uh, another piece that doesn't make any sense, one of the key components of their case against uh, Stephen Avery is that his 16-year-old nephew, who, and I don't have any other way to say this than this, he, he was mentally slow. He was, something was wrong. He just, you can tell from the interviews, you can tell from what is documented, he's not fully capable of, of doing things that a normal 16-year-old kid would be able to do. They get him to confess to being an accomplice in the murder. And in doing so, he tells them this story that they kill her in a very brutal fashion in the house. Except for the fact there's no evidence. There's no blood on any mattresses, no walls, no carpets, nothing. Not a drop anywhere. And I'm sorry, you can clean good, but... <laughs> You can't clean that good, right? I mean, that or that or NCIS has lied to me all these years. I don't know. I just trusted these television shows to tell me the truth. But there's nothing, not a shred of evidence of blood evidence in the house whatsoever. On the other hand, there are things that do seem to uh, indicate that he's guilty. For example, in his car, they find traces of his blood in the car. And at first they thought maybe it was blood from a previous thing that had been... Uh, uh, taken from him, a previous vial, they, they had discovered they'd been taken from him. However, the blood in the car doesn't have the preservative that the blood in the vial had in it, so it seems to be fresh. So how did his blood get in the car if he's really innocent and being framed? I don't know. In the end, he's found guilty of the murder of Teresa Halbach, and he's in jail now. However, in the years since his conviction, it's come to light that certain members of the jury were actually related to officials within Manitowoc County, one of them being related to a deputy in particular. Um, and so even that has now been brought into question. He's still appealing his case. He's still claiming he's been framed. And only time will tell what will happen with these appeals. As Jamie and I have talked about this, because this has led to a lot of very good conversation just about the whole concept of our justice system in general. As we've talked about this, it seems to us that the man should probably be set free if he is guilty of the crime. And folks, he may be. I don't know. The state of Wisconsin has so boggled this case, I mean so boggled it from investigation to trial, every component of it start to finish, they have so boggled this case that I think I would be hard-pressed as a juror who was listening to this to 
say this man is guilty beyond the shadow of a reasonable doubt. If that's my, my level of, of, of determination, I'm not sure I could do it based on what I have heard, read, and seen so, so far. So uh, if that's the case, I think he should go free, and he may actually be getting away with murder. It would be a terrible travesty, but based on what's out there, I'm not sure. And of course, if he's innocent, then there has been a criminal attempt to frame him for this crime, and therefore, he should be set free, and the people who are perpetrating this should go to jail for the rest of their lives and stale. instead. Regardless of his guilt or innocence, and I genuinely do not have an opinion one way or the other as to whether he is guilty or innocent, at least two things to me are certain. Number one, I would not suggest going on vacation to Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. Okay? <laughs> you don't want to get pulled over. I just would stay away from it if I were you. But, but number two... This case, I think, tugs at the very foundation of our sense of justice in the American criminal justice system. And this is why, again, regardless of the man's uh, guilt or innocence, because we may never know, people like myself, like Jamie and some of you, people who otherwise should not care about a 10-year-old murder in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, are watching this thing and are feeling outraged. They're, they're, they're like personally invested now in this. And that, of course, is why the documentary has been made. The whole thing is wrong. It's just wrong. It screams of injustice even if he's guilty and even more so if he's not. Well, today we're entering now this third scene here in Mark chapters 14 and 15, a scene I've titled Jesus on Trial. And in ways that are similar to the Avery example, as you read these accounts of Jesus' trial here on the night before his death, you get the idea that this whole thing is just wrong. The trials of Jesus scream of injustice. However, unlike the Avery case, there is no question as to Jesus' innocence in the midst of all this. It's clear in both of his trials that he's innocent. Uh, it's clear uh, even to the people who are watching it. But despite his innocence, uh, charges are being trumped up against him. That will lead to his death no matter what. The trial of Jesus occurs in two parts, as we saw here in the reading this morning. There's an initial trial that occurs before the religious and cultural leaders of Israel. And if I could use a modern equivalent, and I'll try to expand on this in a little bit, uh, to use a modern American equivalent of what's going on in this first portion of the trial, this is almost like a grand jury hearing. This, this is a, a trial to determine whether or not he is guilty of a crime that they can then take and have him killed for. The second trial that he will have is before Pilate, the Roman governor. And this is the trial that, in a sense, really matters. Because Pilate is the one who has the power to free him or kill him. He can exonerate him or find him guilty. So whatever Pilate decides will be final. Now, I feel like I have a little bit of a problem here as I'm showing this to you, and it's the same problem. I alluded to it very briefly last week, but it's going to be true today and will continue to be true all the way through the rest of chapters 14 and 15, and it's this. The vast majority of you in this room know the details of these sections that we're looking at right now probably better than you have known the details of anything we've looked at previously. I mean, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the death of Jesus is sort of the big point of his life that we talk about a lot. And so you've heard it more than you've heard other things. You just, I don't know what the percentages would be, but I'm guessing it's like 70-30. You probably know a whole lot more about the death of Jesus and the details surrounding it than you would anything else. Uh, not only that, but, it, you know, the gospel writers, you've got four different writers writing about the life of Jesus. So each one is including different details, but all of them include these details. And so because they're in all four Gospels, again, it just increases the amount of times that you're going to run into this and see it. So you're, you're pretty familiar with it. However, the other hand, on the other hand, I've got some of you in this room who don't know the details of this very well, well because you're, you're new to it. And so I don't want to, I don't want to waste uh, one group's time by explaining things they already know, nor do I want to just abandon the other group to have to figure stuff out for themselves. So I'm feeling some tension in how to walk through this. And so what I've decided is that as we watch Jesus go through these two trials, this preliminary trial and then the official trial, I want to focus on one particular question that I think will allow us to re-examine the details of his case in a way that hopefully will bring it uh, to life anew for us. That's my, my goal here. And that one question is this. 
Who is at fault in this travesty of justice that will lead to Jesus' conviction and execution? Who is at fault? Now, we won't answer that question today simply because we can't look at all of the text, but, but that's what we're aiming at in the end. And so to answer that question, let's begin re-examining the details of this case as Mark has laid it out for us here, chapter 1453 through 1515. Let's begin by looking at the setting of the trial. In verse 53, Mark tells us that immediately after Jesus' arrest there in the Garden of Gethsemane, what we looked at last Sunday, he is taken to the high priest and that all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now, this is the first detail that should stand out to us about this particular case for two reasons. First, think about when this is happening. You know, if we go back through the order of the events of this particular day, it'll help put it in some context for you. This is Thursday of the Passion Week, or it was Thursday of the Passion Week. The day began with the disciples coming to Jesus saying, where should we prepare the Passover meal for you? And so Jesus gives them instructions about the upper room. They go find it. Other events that would have been traditional for the Jews during Passover week would have occurred that same day, like the three o'clock sacrifice of the lamb. Sunset would have come. That is the beginning of Friday in their calendar. And at sunset, they're going to have this Passover meal that we have read about here in the weeks prior. This is when they're going to recline around the table. They're in the upper room. They're going to spend a certain amount of time talking together. It's a rather lengthy conversation. John records a large portion of that for us. During that time, Jesus is going to institute the Lord's Supper. When all of that is done, they're going to sing a hymn, and they're going to have to walk out of the city all the way down and around to the base of the Mount of Olives to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark tells us that when they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is going to have three episodes of prayer. And that it's so late now that the disciples cannot stay awake. Remember all of this? That's all one day. <laughs> a lot has occurred over the last several weeks of our teaching that only occurred in a very short window of time. And this event here in verse 53 is following immediately on the heels of all of that. Of all these other events, which means then that this trial is being held in the middle of the night. Now, you don't have to be a legal expert or scholar in any nation, culture, time period to know that trials held in the middle of the night are generally suspicious, right? I mean, everyone gets that even to this day. You don't get a lot of confidence in the impartiality of proceedings when a trial is held under the cover of darkness and away from public view. So just the timing of this first trial component, component screams of injustice, does it not? Why would they do it like this? Well, you'll get the answer to that when you notice the second point. Notice exactly who is holding the trial. It's the, it's the very group of people who have been, from the beginning, plotting Jesus' death. I went back and looked it up this time. Last week I mentioned it on the fly and couldn't remember where. But it was all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where you get the first inkling that the religious leaders of Israel are not impartial to this man Jesus. They want him destroyed. This is the beginning of his ministry, three years prior to this. They want him destroyed. Uh, more recently, Mark told us in chapter 14, verse 1, that two days before the Passover, before this Feast of Unleavened Bread that they're about to celebrate, that the chief priests, the scribes, are seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And I made the observation when we looked at that several weeks ago now, that there is some importance, I think, to the order of their intentions here. Their, their main intention is to arrest Jesus and kill him. That's it. They want to arrest him, they want him dead, and they want to do it in such a way that doesn't cause the people to turn on them. They'll figure out a public justification for this later. The, the reason for it doesn't matter. The real reason for it is their own personal jealousy and hatred of Jesus. But they, that's not sufficient to kill him. They need some public justification. So, you know, the justification component isn't even mentioned here in, this, in verses 1 and 2. Only concern is really killing him and making sure it's done in such a way that the people don't turn on then, them. And herein you see the reason why Jesus is being tried at night. They're trying to do this quietly in a low-profile way. But, but make no mistake... Jesus is on trial before his predetermined executioners. They already know what they want, and they're going to get it one way or another. The only other detail of the setting is noted here in verse 54. After Jesus is arrested in the garden, 
All the disciples fled. They left him. They abandoned him to be alone. However, at least one of them we now discover has circled back around and followed the arresting party from a distance, and that's Peter. In fact, he's going to go all the way into the courtyard of the high priest's residence where guards and servants and whoever else is up at this time of night, for whatever reason, is they're gathered around a fire just trying to keep warm. Peter's going to join them at the fire. This is the setting. Now, let's consider the charges. You know, I told you a few moments ago that the best example I can give you for what's going on here in, in a modern American equivalent would be the grand jury. In American jurisprudence, the, the purpose of the grand jury is to hear evidence and testimony against a potential uh, suspect, a potential criminal, to see whether or not there is enough evidence to bring this person to trial. So if a prosecutor has a person they want to charge with a crime, they've got their certain amount of evidence, they might go to a grand jury and say, hey, listen, here's all the evidence against Joe. Joe did this, this, and this. Here's all the testimony that we have against Joe. What do you think? If the grand jury comes back and says, yes, there's enough evidence, you should take him to trial, the prosecutor will do that. He'll go before a judge, and they'll, the actual criminal trial will begin. However, if the grand jury does not think that there is enough evidence against an individual, then the prosecutor has to make a decision. If I if I can't convince a grand jury, can I really convince a judge? Can I really convince a trial jury of this person's guilt? And so they have to weigh that out on their own. In a similar way, the purpose of this proceeding is to determine Jesus's guilt, to determine the charges that will be brought against him. However, unlike our grand jury system, uh, in this particular case, the question is not whether or not charges should be brought. The question is, what can they charge him with that will get him killed? Like They're not even just looking for any kind of crime. They need a capital crime. They need something that will ensure his execution. And so the chief priests and the whole council, they began seeking testimony against Jesus with the clear purpose, Mark says it, of putting him to death. However, Mark also tells us they found none, which to me, if I could just pause, is, um, is quite striking simply because it is a hilarious, terrible irony that out of all their planning, out of all the plotting of these really smart people, they forgot this one detail of, we've got to get two people in the room who can accuse them of the same thing. Like, whoever's responsibility that was, that guy, you know, he lost his job the next day after this probably because they had everything else in place. The, the, the priests, the scribes, are all ready to go for the trial. Their arresting mob was ready. They had an accomplice in Judas who was ready. Everyone else was ready. How in the world do they miss this detail? It's kind of a big deal. But, but frankly, it ends up making the injustice of the whole thing even more real. It just reveals how biased they truly are. They want him dead. They just need a reason, and they happen to forget to get that ready, and they have none. It's ironic. But even more ironic then this is why they're seeking testimony in the first place. You see, God was very clear in the Old Testament in terms of how Israel viewed its own criminal justice system that no criminal could be convicted, could be punished on the testimony of a single witness. It was designed to protect people from false accusations. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 17.6, God had said, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. Persons shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness, and the idea here being that they, that they agree, the witnesses say the same thing. Uh, same book, different chapter. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. In other words, God had just commanded, you can't just kill someone because you want to because one person says they did something you got to have two or more witnesses who both agree, all agree, hey, this guy did this, we saw it, we heard it, whatever the case may be, uh, in order to move forward. It was a way of protecting people. And so the irony here is, is that these religious leaders are trying to obey God's law as they murder Jesus. Right? They have to obey the law. We don't want to, you know, we anyway violate what God said as we kill someone unjustly. And they can't find it. So they're frustrated in their attempt because despite all of these false witnesses coming forward to make various accusations against him, none of their testimonies agree. And apparently the closest any of them got to an agreeing kind of, of accusation had to do with Jesus' remarks that he made against the temple. 
And Mark writes, some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. The temple was to the Jewish mind, the place where God dwelt with Israel on earth. It's, it's next to heaven. It's akin to heaven. And so to attack the temple is to attack God himself. This would be a, a heinous thing in their minds. And, and it's interesting, Mark never records this full statement of Jesus. In, in chapter 13, Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple, but he never goes on, uh, in Mark's record anyway, he never goes on to say, I'll rebuild it. You have to go to other gospel writers to hear that. But, but even though Mark doesn't record it, some of the people in the room had, had heard him say this, and they bring it up as a potential charge against Jesus. But even in this, they're frustrated. Because whoever is saying it, they're not agreeing on what they're saying, so they can't move forward with this either. In exasperation now, the high priest stands up in the midst of the proceedings, and I would love to know, and I could not find how unusual this would be. I'm picturing that generally high priest, who's like the chief guy, like the, he's like the leader of the religious system. There's a chief priest board. They're like the the other justices of the Supreme Court. He's the chief justice. The chief priest, I'm guessing, probably doesn't personally involve himself in many of the trials that go on in their system. But in this case, he stands up in the midst and he speaks to Jesus directly, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? Can you just like hear the frustration in his words? Jesus remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, let's pause and consider two things very quickly. First, that the high priest asks this question so directly shows you what they understand Jesus to be, or I should say at least what they understand other people to think that Jesus is. People think that he is the Christ, the Messiah that had been promised by God in the Old Testament, the one that, that Israel has been waiting for. And the high priest wants to know, Jesus, do you see yourself in the same way that all these other people see you? Second, Think back to all of the other times in Mark's gospel where someone has either in a question form or in statement form asked or said to Jesus something about him being the Christ, okay? Demons have done it. Other people have done it. And what has been his response every time that's occurred? He has generally distanced himself from the comment. He's either told them, you know, don't say such things, be quiet, don't tell anyone about what's going on. Uh, he refuses to answer. He never confirms. He also doesn't deny, but he never confirms. He has generally avoided answering this question or interacting with this kind of comment or statement in any way. However, this time, Jesus says to them, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall <laughs> there in that chamber when he uttered these words to them. Um, he doesn't just confirm the question that's been asked to him. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? He doesn't, he doesn't just confirm it. And again, I don't know any other way to say it than this. He basically rubs his answer in their face. I mean, just think about the first two words, I am. Now, if you don't know much about the Old Testament, uh, here's the, the, the giveaway on this one. That's the name of God. That's the holy name of God that he gave to Moses to tell the children of Israel about who had sent him. Tell them, I am has sent you. That he uses this phrase to, to answer their question about being the Christ is blasphemous in and of itself in their minds. But then he goes on and says, and you, you personally, chief priest, you personally, counsel, will see the Son of Man, me, seated at the right hand of power of God and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is, this is messianic language taken from Daniel's prophecy that the chief priests would have known well. 
He doesn't just answer their question. He rubs their face in it. No wonder then that the high priest tears his garments. It's, a, it's like a visible picture of anger, of disgust, of, of just even grief sometimes. It says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemn him as deserving death. I mean, it's really the perfect setup for the priest. I mean, they must have just been like, yes. We got him to say it to us. You know, they can't find witnesses who agree. Now they've gotten him to, in their minds, blaspheme to affirm something that they know can't possibly be true. They've gotten him to affirm something in front of them that is, in their minds, worthy of death. He has committed the crime and the sin, it's both, of blasphemy by claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God. And there's certainly no dis, uh, consideration or discussion as to whether or not his claim to be the Christ might possibly be true. Like, they don't even address that. Uh, they've already determined it's not true. You see, they know it's not true because they've decided it's not true, and therefore, because it's not true, he deserves to die. It's, it's just that simple. So what's the decision of the grand jury? They condemn him as being deserving of death, and now, and now the fun begins. Verse 65 should just cause us to sit in silence and consider <laughs> what is about to begin. Some began to spit on him, to cover his face, to strike him, saying, prophesy. The guards received him with blows, and it's, it's, it's here we're going to stop for today because I want to end on this final note of irony here in verse 65. Can and if you have to close your eyes to do it, I don't care. Can you picture this moment? Picture Jesus standing there. I mean, I'm just picturing him standing kind of nonchalantly like this. Generally, he's been quiet, except for this affirmation of who he is. And you've got a guard walking up to Jesus and spitting in his face. Now, it's funny. There are a lot of things that change in time and culture, right? There's things that people did thousands of years ago that we read now, and we just think, I don't get that. But this is one thing that really hasn't changed. If I walk up to you after the service and you're standing there and I just spit in your face, it's going to come across as a, you're not going to like it. I'll just say it like that, okay? Right? You, you get that as being as just a sign of disgrace, of contempt. It, it's, it's, it's terrible. And Jesus now stands condemned as a blasphemer before this crowd, and they're going to begin to treat him such they're spitting on him. He's God. <laughs> these, are, these are sinful men. He could destroy them with a thought. Gone. But he stands there and he takes it. Doesn't move. Doesn't respond. He just takes men spitting on him. They cover his face. I don't know if they had like a rag or something. They cover his face and they begin to hit him, slap him, punch him, all the while taunting him with these words, prophesy, prophesy, most likely meaning tell us who's hitting you. You're, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You should know. Here, I'm going to cover your eyes. Who was it? Who did it? I mean, can you hear it? Can you picture the jeers and what's going on? In Philippians 2, Paul talks about Jesus humbling himself to the point of death. Um, there aren't many of us in this room who I think if we were in Jesus' shoes, even as just mortal men, just if we are standing there taking what, I don't think there are many of us who wouldn't react in some way. We would punch, we would fight, we would lash out, we would do something, even as, as mere men. Uh, and if we were Jesus, and if we had unlimited power at our disposal, I think we would do a whole lot more than that. I know I would. I would not just stand there and take it. Jesus stands there and takes it. But the real irony in this is not so much that these creatures are spitting on and hitting and taunting the creator of the universe. The real irony is that as they're doing all of these things, they're yelling to him the word, prophesy, tell us, prophesy, do it, all the while completely unaware of the fact that they themselves are fulfilling prophecy. Um, Jesus had, 
multiple prophecies for this, for that matter. Jesus had, on several occasions before this, right, prophesied about the very order of events, the types of events that would occur to him here at his death. For example, in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 to 34, he told the disciples, you know, he's, they're walking along, and he says to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. It's happening. He said this weeks ago, months ago in the story. Today it's happening. You know, not only that, but Jesus, the, the fact that Jesus is alone as all this is happening with no one there to help him, support him, it fulfills the very words he had told them just a few hours prior as they were walking to the garden when he said, uh, they had sung this hymn, and he says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, which itself is a prophecy from Zechariah. And here Jesus now stands alone. His prophecy to the disciples being fulfilled as he is there by himself. Uh, not to mention the fact, and we didn't address it today, but as all of this is going on up here, there's a whole other sub-story going on down below in the courtyard where Peter is denying Jesus three times, just as he had said. So, so that means that at least three prophecies are being fulfilled at the very moment when these hooligans are attacking the God of creation and taunting him with the word prophesy. He has prophesied. And everything that he has said and everything that is happening at this very moment is proving his prophecies to be true. Which then, of course, lends credibility to the prophecy that he just uttered in their very presence, which all of them apparently miss when they're demanding a prophecy from him. His prophecy was that he is the Christ and that death will not be the end of him, but that his very accusers will see him standing in power seated in power at the right hand of God. They'll see him for true, who he truly is, and that is as God, which again reminds me of the rest of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. As Paul has talked about Jesus humbling himself, becoming a man and humbling himself even further to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul notes, therefore, because of what Jesus has done in humbling himself, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that sounds so cool and so awesome, but it is not. At least not for everybody. It's actually quite a scary comment that Paul says here in Philippians 2. Because one day, the truth of the matter is, one day everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow to him as Lord, every single one. Some will bow their knee and confess him as Lord in gladness because they get to stand before him as Savior. But others will do it in horror because they are going to be falling before him as judge. Either way, every knee bows. Either way, every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord Regardless of what anyone thought or said or did in this life, a day is coming when everyone will see Jesus for who he truly is. And then justice, real justice, righteous justice will be administered once and for all. If you're here today and you're in that second group, the one that stands before or will stand before Jesus as judge someday, can I just say to you, it's not too late <laughs> That God is calling you to himself. He, he's, he's calling you to not do that. To Rather than waiting until you have to fall before him as a judge, to come now on your knees and fall before him as a savior. To confess your sins, to repent. Confess him as Lord, repent. Put all your hope and hope in him alone. The death that he is about to die in the story is for your sins. Or for your sins. He's paying for your sins so that you don't have to. And now the Spirit calls you to repent and believe. Will you bow your heads with me?
Jesus, even at a human level, our sense of justice tells us that what is going on in this story is wrong. It screams of injustice to us. This is a kangaroo court that has been called together with one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to have you killed. Trumped up charges, an unwillingness to consider anything. You, you are being murdered. You're not being convicted. You're being murdered in this story. And yet we recognize that even in this, which seems so wrong to us, it is the very foundation, it is the basis of why we have hope and why we've gathered here today. It's in the injustice of this that you are able to be the just judge who can both condemn sin and yet forgive the sinner because you were willing to take it on yourself. And so one day we recognize that everyone will see you for who you truly are. Everyone will stand before you someday. They will bow their knees and they will confess one way or the other that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some of us will do that with great joy, welcomed into your kingdom for all eternity. And others will do it with the deepest regret and the most dreadful sense of horror that any person could ever feel as they are ushered out of your presence for all eternity. If there is anyone in this room who's in that second group, may they consider their case before you, recognize that they have no hope on their own, know that one day they will confess you, and Lord, will you call them to do it now? Open their eyes to see. Open their hearts to understand their desperate need of you. Call them to yourself in faith and repentance to turn from their sins and turn to you for the only hope that they will ever have in this life. Thank you for giving us that hope. Thank you that we can read this morning, not with that sense of horror and dread, but with a sense of joy and gladness, knowing that these terrible events ultimately end in your victory and in our salvation. We ask in Jesus' name.